Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. I'm Erin Carey, and I am super excited to be sitting here with Dr. James Gordon. Dr. James Gordon is the founder and executive director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C., where he has created and implemented what may well be the world's largest and most effective program for healing population-wide trauma. He and his 130 international faculty have brought this program to populations as diverse as refugees from wars in the Balkans, the Middle East and Africa, New York City firefighters and US military personnel and veterans and their families, student parent teacher school shooting survivors, and Native American children and their families, as well as stressed out professionals, stay-at-home mothers, inner city children, White House officials, health professionals, and medical students, and people struggling with emotional and physical illnesses. His new book is called The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma, and it is amazing. I have read it, and I am absolutely honored that you are here today. So thank you so much, Dr. Gordon, for being here. Thank you, Erin. It's good to be here. Yes. So I would love if you could give a little bit of background on um, just your background in psychiatry. What led you to mind-body <laughs> medicine to begin with? Um, my own wanting something more, which I think is what leads a lot of people to be looking at other than conventional approaches. So I, uh, I understood the effectiveness of psychotherapy. I had experienced it as a patient myself. I've been doing psychotherapy with people for several years as a, well, as a medical student, an intern, and resident. And uh, I was then a res- became a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health. And, and I really appreciated the benefits of psychotherapy, but I wondered what else there was. What else could uh, expand the experience of people beyond what they got out of psychotherapy? I became interested in how to work with people on a physical level without using medication, which back in the early 1970s was still the only way that medicine uh, dealt with people on a physical level. It was either right. you were put on drugs or, or not, or given electroshock therapy. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in the whole spiritual dimension mm-hmm. of our lives and of how we could go beyond being more aware, better adjusted, more effective, to being uh, much more loving, living more in harmony with who we're meant to be. And I don't know if I would have said it exactly like that at the time, but I had a sense that I I wanted something more, and I had a feeling, uh, and I'd just begun to glimpse many other ways of working with myself, physically, emotionally, uh, interpersonally, spiritually, and I, I began to search, first for me, and as the different tools and techniques and approaches proved helpful to me, I wanted to share them with other people, both people, patients who were coming to me as a physician and psychiatrist, and also with the larger world. I was, as I said, a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health, and I saw it as my mission to explore the new frontiers in medicine, psychiatry, psychology, and, and then bring back whatever understanding I could find and share it with others. Thank you. Yeah, that's amazing. I, um, I love that because just for me, I think even still today, it's 2019. And I know a lot of people I know only know about medication and talk therapy and that's it. Um, that's so your message that you're bringing is helping heal a lot of people, myself included. Um, so Tell me a little bit about the book. Who is the intended audience for this book? Um, why, why did you write it? Why did you write The Transformation? It's, uh, the, the audience is everyone. <laughs> the, the last book I wrote was a book called Unstuck, 
and it was about depression. That's and a great one would, too, uh, by the way. <laughs> thank you. A number of people said that, that they really liked it. Uh, but then people who looked at it, but who said, well, I'm not depressed, but you have a lot to tell me. Um, and you have a lot to tell other people who are not depressed. So why don't you write a book for next time, write a book for everyone. So I thought about it. I actually thought about it for a number of years and started on several different books and then wound up with the transformation, writing about psychological trauma, because sooner or later, trauma in one form or another comes to everyone. If it doesn't come early in life because of discrimination or poverty or neglect or abuse, uh, it's going to come most likely as we are young adults and uh, as we uh, enter midlife through breakups, for example, in relationships that feel pretty terrifying to us through significant disappointments in our work life, yeah. the death of our parents, illnesses that come to us or people we care about. And certainly if trauma, which is a Greek word that means injury, mm -hmm. if it doesn't come then, it's going to come, if we're lucky enough to grow old, we'll become frail. We will lose people we love and we'll yeah. have to deal with our own death. So this understanding that trauma comes to everyone is a, an understanding that's there in every religious and spiritual tradition that I know of. And I, uh, I began to realize it myself. I began to realize it in my own life as well as in the lives of all the people I was working with. So I, I figured, well, let me write a guidebook. Let me write a book that will help us all. And it was also helpful to me as I was writing it. Uh, all navigate the inevitable challenges and the inevitable trauma that's going to come to us. And so I created this book and wrote it and wrote it in such a way that the order of the chapters really uh, makes walking on this path of transformation much easier for everyone. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a kind of putting, it's putting together 50 years of, professional experience, almost 80 years of lived experience, yeah. the best, the best ev evidence that we have uh, in science, stories that are inspirational, and also an understanding that comes from traditional wisdom. So putting that all together and doing my best to make it available to everybody. Yeah, and I, I love that you um, wrote it in a way that is understandable for people that don't have a science-y background. I mean, you know, I think when I was in biology class in high school, I was writing poetry. So, <laughs> I mean, even for me, um, I, reading it, and, and I have, you know, a greater understanding now doing some self-study on these things, but again, it just reaffirmed for me what happens in our, our mind when we experience trauma, what happens in our digestive system when we experience trauma, which I will ask you about in, in a minute, but it just really broke it down in um, a deep way, in a heavy way, but also in an easy to understand way. And that is super important when we're reading books like this. Um, the other thing that you mentioned that I think is so important for people to understand is that just because, um, you know, I know you go to war-torn countries and you've seen the big capital T traumas, you know, but I think most of us, we experience lowercase t traumas in our life. And I don't know, I've always wondered if trauma is a relative thing, um, that it affects us in, in different ways, depending on the time of life and things like that. But um, I think for me, I didn't realize until I was reading your book that, being diagnosed with a chronic illness when I was 18 years old, being diagnosed with bipolar disorder was a trauma in my life. And so I thank you for bringing that to light. I'd never even connected that before. So, um, I mean, there are so many bits and pieces that I got from it, but yeah. that was one thing. Erin, that's really important. And, and this whole, I don't even know who started this big T, little T trauma. Stuff. <laughs> I, I don't think, I honestly don't think that's very helpful. Oh, good. Because yeah. the, for a young woman, uh, being diagnosed with a, a chronic illness, that is traumatic. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. It turns your life upside down and inside out. And it's true, you didn't lose your whole family in a war or an mm -hmm. earthquake. Mm -hmm. But for you, that's traumatic. Comparison is a, um, I think, actually very destructive for the most yeah. part. Because who's got more? Who's got mm -hmm. less? Let's compare. What good does it do? Mm -hmm. How does that help anyone? Yeah. And what I've found is when I worked with people 
who may have lost many family members, and there are other people in a group with them, people who have, let's say, are dealing with a chronic illness or dealing with a divorce, um, everybody recognizes the commonalities of their experience. Mm -hmm. And that's much more important mm -hmm. than focusing on mine's bigger than yours. That's, yeah. that's, uh, so I, I, you know, I'm, I, I, the, one of the ideas of the book is let that one go because then mm -hmm. you think, well, what I've seen again and again is people saying, well, maybe I really don't deserve the time and the attention to talk about my trauma. No, that's mm -hmm. not true. It's yours. It's your life. It's just as important as anybody else's life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That is a very powerful message. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that helps me a lot too. Um, so you kind of already touched on what is trauma, the definition of trauma, but um, can you explain a little bit about um, maybe for beginners, <laughs> the biology behind trauma, um, you know, a little bit what happens in our bodies, what happens in our brains, that whole connection there. Sure. Um, well, I think the, the way to understand it is that uh, I'm simplifying a bit, but not too much. There are two basic reactions that happen when we're dealing with a traumatic event or traumatic events. And trauma is a, is a Greek word that means injury. So any kind of injury, physical, psychological, social, spiritual, economic. Uh, the, there are two reactions, one called the fight or flight reaction, which mm -hmm. probably pretty much everyone knows about. The other is called the freeze reaction. Mm -hmm. The fight-or-flight reaction was discovered almost 100 years ago by a, a Harvard physiologist named Walter Bradford Cannon, and he wrote a wonderful book called The Wisdom of the Body. It's a great title. And what Cannon observed is that all vertebrates, all animals with backbone, when they're threatened by a predator or by, a high, uh, by being in a high place, a life-threatening situation, they have very similar reactions. Heart rate goes up, mm. blood pressure goes up, big muscles in the body become mm. mobilized to either fight or run. Digestion doesn't work so well right. because no point in, you know, you don't want to stop for a seven course meal when there's a lion <laughs> chasing after you yeah. or even a snack. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, we've learned more about it in recent years. We know that that kind of Stress and that kind of trauma increases activity in a part of the emotional brain called the amygdala mm -hmm. that's responsible for fear and anger mm -hmm. and decreases activity in the frontal part of our cerebral cortex in areas responsible for self-awareness and mm -hmm. thoughtful decision-making and yeah. compassion. So that's the state that we're in in fight or flight. Fight or flight is meant to come to do its job to either prime us to fight a predator or to get us out of there. And genetics, generally speaking, determines whether we fight or run away. Hmm, but fight or flight is meant quickly and go quickly. So if you see, example that I usually use, if you see an animal, uh, an antelope, say, on, on the Serengeti plain in Africa, mm -hmm. see a, a video of it, you know, on the Nature Channel or somewhere, and antelope's kind of happily grazing, and then along comes a lion, and antelope's off. Right. Antelope is not a terribly smart animal, as far <laughs> as we know. Doesn't have a very big brain, but its brain is big enough, and its genetic programming is good enough to tell it, you're not going to fight this lion. You're going to flee. So mm -hmm. the antelope flees, and either the lion kills the antelope, catches the antelope, and kills her, in which case the story's over, or the antelope gets away. And then within two minutes or so, the antelope is happily grazing. Hmm. It's as if it had never happened. Fight or flight has come, done its job, saved the antelope's life, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And now the antelope is relaxed, digestion has come back online, and she's eating. The thing with human beings is that we have both the blessing and the curse of having a very big brain. Yeah. So when something traumatic happens to us, we tend to play it over and over again. 
in our brain. We tend to uh, see the image of it over and over. We yeah. tend to have the same feelings, the same mm-hmm. you know, tension and high blood pressure and fast heart rate days, weeks, months after the traumatic event. We keep on replaying it in our body and our mind. Yeah. And that's what does the damage. The traumatic event does a certain amount of damage, but much more is done by being chronically in fight or flight mode. Mm. We stay irritable, angry, have difficulty sleeping, difficulty focusing, mm-hmm. can't connect so well with other people, or sometimes even think particularly straight. Right. And situations that are somehow reminiscent of the situation that was traumatizing make us extremely anxious. Mm. And since we think not only you know, through memory, but also by analogy, similar situations. So, for example, let's say we were beaten up in a dark alley. It may be that when evening comes and there's a kind of darkness, even though we're in a pretty safe place, we still feel that same agitation. It gets heightened again. Yeah. The other major physiological response to trauma is the freeze response. <laughs> That's me. That's, I'm familiar with that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, often people have both fight or flight and freeze. Freeze response, again, is life-saving. It's a uh, response that, for example, in animals, it shuts us down, it shuts them down. Uh, They put out lots of endorphins, so do humans, Mm -hmm. and we kind of remove ourselves from the situation. And freeze comes when the situation feels overwhelming and inescapable. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you gave you gave the you gave your example of a chronic uh, diagnosis of a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Well, that can both provoke fight or flight, anxiety, weariness, mm-hmm. irritable, difficulty focusing. But you can also, if it feels overwhelming and inescapable, just kind of shut down, and you may not be as much in contact with other people. You may not be able to appreciate the help that they're offering because you're mm-hmm. you're walled off as a protective yeah, mechanism. Yeah. And again, it's a life-saving response. Uh, animals that go into fight or flight, uh, for example, do you have any cats in your house? No, I don't. Uh-uh. I'm a dog well, person. <laughs> if, you had, if you had, you're a dog person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen so much. Cats are really very good hunters. Most dogs, some mm-hmm. dogs are good hunters, but cats are almost all, that's their nature. They, uh, and if you ever can't catch a bird or catch a mouse, for example, it has it in its mouth, and the mouse just goes totally limp. And if the cat doesn't scrunch down and kill them, kill the mouse, after a while she gets bored. Because the mouse mm-hmm. is no fun to play with. So that <laughs> yeah. cat puts the mouse down on the ground. She shakes herself off, frees herself from the freeze response, mm. melts the freeze response with that shaking, and off the mouse goes perfectly well again. We humans don't do things so quickly. The mouse no. had the freeze, saved her life when she didn't need it anymore. She was gone. She was out of the freeze. We humans stay, and this may have been what happened to you, uh, is just stay shut down. Mm-hmm. We want to go hide under the bed. You know, we don't, you know, we can't reach out to other people. We're just feeling so self-protective. Our bodies feel tense and numb. Mm-hmm. And so any approach that's going to work with trauma needs to address directly both the fight or flight and the freeze response and to provide antidotes for both of them. And that's foundational in helping us to overcome and move through and beyond trauma. Yeah. Wow. That is so much good information. Thank you for that. Um, One thing I want to ask you about, because um, I know you touch on it a little bit in the book, um, trauma, I recently learned there's that epigenetic effect too, right? Um, We don't just carry it for ourselves. We pass it down to our future generations. And um, that's something I am constantly fascinated by because there were things in my life as a little girl, there are situations that I was wary about, but I had no reason for being wary about these situations. And is that an epigenetic response? 
did you ever figure out what was going on where you might have gotten that weariness from? No. Uh -uh. Okay. It's really important that you recognize that that you had that and you sort of wonder, what's this about? Now, there there are two ways that trauma can be passed off with families. One is if you have parents who are anxious for whatever mm. reason, they're, <laughs> they're going to make, and you're, and you're living with those parents, yeah. they're going to make you more anxious mm-hmm. and you're going to have, or they're irritable and impatient. It's likely that you're going to learn some of those ways of being from them. Uh, for example, my father was a surgeon and, um, so I learned some things from that were really good. I learned to, you know, to look at problems in comprehensive ways. I learned a certain degree of confidence. I learned to mobilize my intuition because he was a very intuitive physician. Uh, I learned something about a role that allowed me to be very compassionate. But I also learned to be pretty impatient because he was a very <laughs> impatient man. And I think that, you know, part of my impatience is... Uh, you know, it came from him. It came from experiencing this in, in childhood right. and wanting everything to happen on time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> certain surgeons like to be on time. <laughs> but so that's one way. There's a family culture and mm-hmm. things get transmitted. My mother was an anxious woman. And then and I have two brothers and some of that anxiety is there in all of us. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's social transmission. Epigenetic transmission comes when the those fears or the results, really the result of trauma, which may be fear, may be um, emotional withdrawal, may be uh, tension of various kinds, difficulty coping in various ways, when that's transmitted through the chromosomes. Mm-hmm. Now, it you mentioned the word epigenetic epi means above Mm -hmm. in greek so this is a change in structures that are loosely speaking above the genes they're not in the genes structures uh, in uh, substances called histones or ch3 methyl molecules Mm -hmm. that modify the way the genes work and so what happens is that when we've experienced very significant trauma, there are epigenetic changes so that we're no longer able, among other things, to uh, deal with stress effectively. Hmm. The genes that are in our bodies that are responsible for helping us to deal with stress don't work as efficiently as they did before we were traumatized. Wow. Now, those changes in the chromosomes, which affect the way the genes that help us deal with stress, work, finish their effectiveness, can be passed on in utero from a pregnant mother to the child inside her. But they can also be passed on by both mother and father to a child who is not yet conceived. Oh, wow. So they're passed on in the chromosomes that come from both mother and father to the child, and that child can also pass on those epigenetic changes to his or her children. Gosh, and wow. the research research has been done on animals that shows that animals for, uh, for the grandparent, mouse or rat, whatever it is, passes these epigenetic changes on to the child who in turn passes it on to the grandchild. And there's also, and so the grandchild doesn't deal, the grandchild has these changes, which can be observed, epigenetic changes, and also doesn't deal with stress terribly well. Hmm. The same happens with human beings. A researcher named Rachel Yehuda studied the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. And these kids and grandkids, even when they had no contact, with the Holocaust survivor themselves, they exhibited the same genetic changes and the same vulnerability to stress. Wow. So, for example, they were, they, they were adopted out to another family, which was not wow. a particularly stressed out family. So this, this is a, I mean, it's a kind of biblical sound to this that's passed <laughs> on to the <laughs> next, second generation. 
And it's something, it's something to become aware of. So it, it may be that that's something that you experienced. Maybe that something was passed on. And again, it could have been social transmission, but it mm-hmm. also could have been a gene- genetic transmission. Hmm. And I think it's imp- important, especially when we have uh, symptoms, things that are going on with us that we don't really understand. You know, I, I, why am I so nervous about going out at night? I was never attacked at night. Mm-hmm. I was never, nothing bad really ever happened to me. Why, why do I feel such anxiety in strange places or at nighttime? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that difficulty dealing simply with strangeness and difference, with a, which is a, always a little bit of stress, may be magnified because of epigenetic changes. Now, I think that what's important is those changes exist, but this is not a life sentence. We can reverse those epigenetic changes yes. with precisely the techniques that I teach in the transformation. ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Do you struggle with knowing the right food for your lifestyle? Is there really a one right way to eat? As a chronic dieter, I was always so confused by the food rules and the fad diets. Where to even start? That's why I decided to go into health coaching. As your health coach, I will help you find the solution that is right for you. I will help you find balance. Unlike most dietitians and nutritionists, I focus on a whole person approach, not just food. I address stress, sleep patterns, underlying root issues, and so many other contributing factors to health. And as a mental illness survivor, I love talking about ways to fire up brain health. If you're interested in learning more and maybe even a complimentary consultation, contact me at www.sparkingwholeness.com or message me on Instagram through the handle Sparking Wholeness. And now let's get back to the show. a little bit about soft belly breathing. I know that's um, a big theme throughout the book. You mentioned that quite a few times. Um, Tell me what it is. um, How does it help? Sure. So soft belly breathing is a technique I learned maybe 45 years ago from Stephen Uh Levine, a wonderful psychologist and spiritual teacher. And I like it because it's very simple. It's non-denominational. You don't have to change your religion or do anything that violates your religion. You don't have to pay money for it. You don't have to go somewhere. You don't have to change your clothes. You do it wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, and it's extremely effective. And we'll do, let's do it just for a couple of minutes so everybody okay. can experience it with us. That's great. And then I'll talk a little bit more about it. Okay. So sit comfortably. And let's breathe deeply in through our nose and out through our mouth with our belly soft and relaxed. Focusing on the breath coming in through the nose and going out through the mouth. On the word soft as we breathe in and belly as we breathe out. 
and on the feeling of relaxation and softening in our belly. Technically, this is a concentrated meditation. We're concentrating on the breath, on the words soft and belly, and on the feeling of softening and relaxing in our bellies. As we breathe like this slowly and deeply, more air goes to the bottom of our lungs, There's better oxygen exchange. More oxygen enters our bloodstream. And oxygen feeds all the cells in our bodies. Breathing slowly and deeply like this, in through the nose and out through the mouth our belly soft and relaxed activates the vagus nerve that's V-A-G-U-S vagus means wandering in Latin and this big nerve wanders up from our belly through our chest back to our central nervous system to our brain It quiets the fight or flight response. It's the antidote to the flight, fight or flight response. Slows heart rate, lowers blood pressure, helps to relax the big muscles in our bodies that are tensed for fight or flight. improves our digestion that's shut down when we're in fight or flight. Breathing slowly and deeply like this in through the nose and out through the mouth quiets activity in the centers of fear and anger in the amygdala in the emotional brain and increases activity in the frontal part of our cerebral cortex, increases activity in areas responsible for judgment, self-awareness, compassion. And one branch of the vagus nerve connects with other nerves that make it easier for us to read facial expressions and tune into what other people are saying. So breathing slowly and deeply like this, in through the nose and out through the mouth, with our belly soft and relaxed, quiets the body, calms, focuses the mind, improves our capacity for self-awareness, and makes it easier or satisfying to connect with other people. Breathing slowly and deeply like this, with our bellies soft and relaxed, all the muscles begin to relax, all the muscles in our bodies. And you can feel that as you exhale. Feeling the muscles relax in your belly, buttocks and pelvis. Feeling the muscles relax in your legs and feet as you exhale. And your whole back, feeling your back, your butt up to your head, relax as you exhale. Feeling your chest and shoulders relax. Feeling the muscles of your 
neck and face and head relax as you exhale. Feeling your whole body relax with each exhalation. To encourage this process, you can say to yourself, soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out. If thoughts come, let them come, notice them, let them go. Gently bring your mind back to soft belly. Gently open your eyes. Let your attention come back in the room. Wow, I'm, thanks. I am totally relaxed now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I went somewhere else. Wow, I needed that. I think I probably stay in <laughs> fight or flight or some kind of adrenal fatigue every day. So <laughs> thank so you. What, what did you notice, Eric? What kind of changes did you notice? Um, I was just complete, like everything was relaxed in my head. My brain was calm, which my brain is usually going at some kind of a hypomanic pace most of the time. <laughs> um, it just really closed down. It, it was good. It felt very peaceful and safe and calming. Great. And that's what happens to about 80% of the people who do this with me for the first time. And I imagine it's going to happen with about 80% of the people who read about it in the transformation and practice. We did it maybe for eight or 10 minutes max. Wow. And so each individual change with body feeling calmer, more peaceful, maybe shoulders relaxed, mm -hmm. uh, maybe the room's a little more inviting when you open your eyes. Yeah. Those are great. But also there's a message from doing this. And the message is you can make a difference in how you feel. Mm -hmm. And when we're going through a hard time, some immediate trauma that's happened, a loss, a disappointment, a death, whatever it might be, um, or when we're just under stress over time or we're dealing with a chronic illness, often the worst part is we feel hopeless and helpless. We feel like we can't do anything about it. Doing soft belly like this tells you from your own experience, not because some guy like me says it's going to work, <laughs> but because right. you've done it and you've experienced it, it says to you, you can make a difference in how you feel. Mm -hmm. And this is crucial step. And what I've seen working with people with us over the last 45 years or so is this is often the first major step toward healing a variety of different kinds of trauma, toward dealing with chronic stress or getting on the road to much greater resiliency because it's an, an ant, not only an antidote to the fight or flight response, it's an antidote to those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness that can often plague us. Yeah, so salt belly breathing is a beginning. And once we're able to quiet ourselves and be more relaxed, then all the other 20 or 30 techniques I teach are so much easier to use. If you're anxious and tense and upset and, watching out for who's going to do what to you next. 
very hard to learn anything new. But if you're relaxed and calm and you can open your mind and open your heart, you can learn and use so many different techniques. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, and I think one thing that it helps me with is I struggle with being in the present because I'm always thinking about what's next and what I want to do and what, you know, what I have to do and need to do. And this, that doesn't matter if I can't be all in in the present, you know? And so I think that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that the, one of the kind of one of the best ways to describe the after effects of a trauma, let's say you have experienced something mm-hmm. and hurt emotionally or physically or big disappointment um, is that you're kind of nailed to the past. It has its, mm-hmm. or to use another image, it's like mm-hmm. it has its, its hands around your throat. It's keeping you there. You're remembering, you're feeling, you're thinking about it, you're having images of it, you're feeling guilty, you're feeling angry. And as you suggested, you're worried about what's going to happen next. Is it going to get worse? Is something similar or something different going to happen? You're not in the present. So meditation, and this is technically a concentrative meditation because you're concentrating on the breath and on soft belly and on the feeling of the belly being soft. You're in the present. So the more you're in the present, the less of a grip the trauma has on you. The easier it is to live your life fully and freely. Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's so good. So for, you know, just the regular mom, friend of mine, or whoever that's listening to this, um, how often should we be doing this daily, 10 minutes a day? As, as often as possible. And, but don't make that another burden. Right. Uh, So sometimes, sometimes it's great to do it. A lot of the research originally on meditation, on the effectiveness of meditation for counteracting flight and um, decreasing anxiety, improving mood, uh, rebuilding the brain, Mm -hmm. making all parts of our brain function more in harmony with each other. They were done on people meditating 40 minutes a day, usually 20 minutes twice a day. Wow. That's a lot for a lot of people. My experience is that you can make major differences if you do something, if you do this soft belly breathing, say five minutes, two or three times a day. Mm-hmm. And there's some very interesting research uh, that was done by Sarah Lazar up at Harvard mm-hmm. in which beginning meditators who learned how to do a meditation in some ways similar to soft belly, uh, after they learned when they practiced as little as two hours a week, which is about 20 minutes a day, uh, they were able to make all these changes in the way their brains functioned and wow. also they were able to rebuild parts of their brains that were caused, were damaged by stress or trauma in the frontal cortex, wow. for example, and also subdue activity in the amygdala, the centers of fear and anger. So that's, and there are some suggestions you may be able to achieve similar results with even less time. But I suggest people begin five, 10 minutes, two, three times a day if you can and see what happens. And after a while, what I find is just a few deep breaths, maybe one or two minutes of breathing deeply, really relaxes me, brings me into the present moment. Uh, We we do it before our staff meetings at the Mm -hmm. Center for Mind Body Medicine. So we're not just, you know, not just ready to argue or react or get our point across. (laughs) We can actually sit peacefully and listen to each other and speak when it makes sense to speak and not to defend ourselves or prove a point, but just to be a member of the group and to be able to share easily and listen carefully. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I'm so glad that you shared that and that you took the time to go through the whole routine. It was so helpful for me to um, practice that and hopefully for for people who are listening as well. Um, We don't have a whole lot of time left. Yeah. Aaron, one, one thing is that the, the script for the soft belly breathing, it's in there in the transformation and the script for all the techniques I teach, they're all there in the transformation. So people can read them if they want to record them for themselves, they can. And also they can look at our website, cmbm.org. And some of what I teach in the transformation is there on the website. So you can download my voice teaching some of these techniques. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, you do have a very calming voice too. I'm particular about who I listen to <laughs> in guided meditations because sometimes the voices are just annoying, but yours is very calming. And so I appreciate that. <laughs> Good. Well, that discrimination is really important. That's an important part of dealing with trauma and stress <laughs> is we all need, and if we're calmer, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a circle here. If we're calmer, we discriminate better. And then we can discriminate between who's calming and who's not. There we go. Yeah. But, <laughs> so but find, you know, as people um, start using some of these techniques, pick the ones that I teach. I teach many, many techniques. Not everyone is going to for every person. Mm -hmm. So pick the ones that seem most useful and start with those and use those and use them as best you can. Okay. Yeah. That's so helpful. Thank you. Um, so that's all on the C what cmbm.org. Right. You can see a lot of, and then my website is at James at James Gordon, md.com. And I, that's Twitter and Instagram. I'd say all James Gordon, md. You can, you know, see what I'm teaching and what I'm learning. And, and there, there are so many techniques that people can use that are very helpful. And what I've done in the transformation is I teach them in an order that makes sense. It's an order in which, as you do the first one, like soft belly breathing, uh, you become more open and it's easier to do the other techniques mm -hmm. and so on. Each technique builds on the previous one. And all of them are grounded in my understanding that we have the capacity in ourselves to heal the damage that trauma and chronic yes. stress had done. And I, and I love that. And that's, you know, what I was taught in nutrition school. They talked about the body has the ability to heal itself by itself if given half a chance. And I think that message is so important because people feel stuck um, and people feel like there is no other option. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. There are a few things um, you suggest in your book that I just want to throw out there just to pique people's interest because I thought it was so interesting. Chaotic breathing, shaking and dancing, body scans. I mean, there are a few uh, techniques that you have in there, um, especially the shaking and dancing. I have a, a three-year-old who really likes that one. We, we've been practicing some things at home. That's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think, um, what do you think will be a surprising takeaway for people reading this book? Well, I, I think you referred to two of the techniques that are expressive meditations. One is shaking and dancing. And sh people can read about it in detail, but shaking is you stand up with your knees slightly bent, your feet shoulder width, and you just shake your body for five yeah. or six or more minutes. And what you find is you start freeing yourself from the tension. You start being more relaxed, more energized, and emotions that you've been holding on to and keeping down and suppressing may start to come up and you may start to feel great relief. So these expressive techniques are really important. And that, maybe that's a good takeaway for people mm -hmm. that whether it's shaking and dancing or the chaotic breathing is fast, deep breathing, or if, it, if there's a lot of anger that you're feeling, it may be pounding pillows that all of these techniques help to um, melt the trauma frozen body, help us to open up when we've been shut down, physically when we're feeling really tight in our bodies and we're feeling emotionally, you know, we're just worried and uh, unable to open up to ourselves or to right. other people. And I, I think people need to understand that these are the oldest techniques for healing, uh, oldest meditative techniques on the planet, along with the first herbs that <laughs> our remote ancestors discovered that still can be very important these expressive meditations are part of the healing tradition of every society that I know of, and we need to use them. So physical exercise is great. It also, it also helps to reverse fight or flight mm -hmm. and helps to free us from freezing. But these expressive meditations have some of the same physiological benefits as at just pure movement and you know, running or jogging or swimming but they also free us up because there's no goal except just to break up some of these fixed patterns to bring more energy, more life into our bodies and to help them become freer. So I would say to people, time, time to recover and reclaim your body. And anyone can do these. There are a few um, 
limitations for expressive for some of the expressive meditations, for example, for the chaotic breathing. I mentioned them in detail in the transformation, but for something like shaking and dancing, anyone can do it. Yeah. Even if you can't stand up and you're in a wheelchair, you can do it in the wheelchair. You can do it in a hospital mm-hmm. bed. And the results are often immediate. You see, oh my God, I feel I feel better. I feel a little lighter. I feel a little more energized. I'm not as scared as I was. I kind of feel more present, more here in the room. So I just want to encourage people to uh, with, to come to these approaches and these techniques with an open mind mm-hmm. to um, look at the research on them that I that I write about that mm-hmm. I cite. Take, take a look at the studies if you want. Pay attention to the people whose stories I'm telling, because they've used these techniques and they their lives have quite literally been transformed by the techniques. Yeah. And then do the experiments. This is all about learning on ourselves, mm-hmm. about doing the experiments on ourselves and discovering what we can about what helps us. That's how I started doing this work as you know, we were mentioning 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this is what I recommend to everybody is that you can learn and you can make a difference in how you feel. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you had just one piece of advice to spark someone towards wholeness, what would it be? I know you've listed a thousand. <laughs> uh, relax into the present moment. Hmm. And wherever possible, open your heart. I love that. Thank you so, so much. Um, Your book, The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma is amazing. It's available everywhere. Books are available on your website as well. Um, JamesGordonMD.com, CMBM.org. And then you can be followed on Twitter and Instagram at JamesGordonMD. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Erin. Pleasure being with you. Hope to see you in Dallas. I would love that. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.